following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. If you uh, regularly worship here as a part of Grace on the Ashley, your Bible is automatically open to the Gospel of John. So you're going to have to train it to move in a different direction this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to give attention this morning to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, uh, then skipping down to verse 13, and then verses 8 through 21. We certainly don't have time to deal with 21 verses, but I want to pull the theme out of this, out of this text that you'll see as we read these verses uh, sort of uh, back to back and paste it together. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we... We have these moments that are, that are precious to us on this resurrection celebration morning. These moments where we can turn our attention to your word, where you, even being removed a couple thousand years from us in time, can still speak to us. And particularly this morning as we give our attention to the theme of hope, we pray, O oh Lord, that as we look at what your Apostle Peter has given to us about this subject, that you would breathe hope into our own hearts. A hope that's firm, a hope that's sustainable throughout our lives, a hope that takes us securely to the very end and sees us through to eternity. We pray for that this morning. Lord Jesus, for your glory and for your honor. Amen. I want to simply look at this text that we've just read together this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want us to ask two questions and answer two questions. The first question I want us to consider this morning is where do you look to find hope? That's a question that's aimed at you. Where do you look to find hope? When it comes down to the, to the give and take of your normal everyday life, where do you look to find hope? What, what is it that keeps you going every day? What is it that that provides you enough, enough uh, motivation to get up each and every day and to keep going? What is it that gets you through life? What is it that gets you through life, particularly when life gets hard? What is that, that, that hope that you have that you can hang on to when life gets really tough, when there are hard times, when there are painful times, when there are discouraging times? What is it that you hope in? What is it that you latch onto when life around you comes unglued? Where do you look to find hope? 
The second question is, how do you maintain hope in your life? If you have a place that you can look to find hope, there's another question. It's not just where do we go to find hope, but the secondary question, how do we maintain that hope throughout life? How do we hang on to hope as life moves forward? As we get older, as things change, as circumstances come and as they go, how do we hold on to hope? How do we maintain it to the end of our lives? I want to talk about hope this morning. Where does it come from? How do we get it and how do you maintain it? This is what Peter is writing about in First Peter chapter 1 in this first part. And if you look around at our society, if you look around at culture in general, it's, it's not hard to realize and to, to notice really right on the surface as a sketch that people in general are struggling to find hope. That people are looking to find hope. That people are reaching in every direction to try and find some sort of a place where they can anchor their lives in some sort of a hope that can sustain them each and every day through the give and the take of life. And we find that as we survey society around us that hope seems to be a rare commodity. I was confronted with the stark reality of that just two weeks ago when I had the opportunity to be a part of leading a memorial service for a young man in our community who very, very early in his life, just shy of the age of 20, descended so so deeply into hopelessness, so deeply into darkness of hopelessness that he was willing to take a pistol and put it in his mouth and pull the trigger. His circumstances of his life seemed so painful. His future seemed so bleak. There was no hope. There was no hope. And everything was so dark and so bleak and hopelessness was so real that the decision was made that it's better to die than it is to live. Well, I wish I could say it was an isolated event, but that was no isolated event. If you look at the statistics around us, even in just our American culture, you find that about every 13 minutes in the United States, somebody makes that decision, makes that choice, takes that action. 2013, over 41,000 Americans were so deep into hopelessness that they took their own lives. 41,000 people in one year, just in our nation alone. It was the 10th leading cause of death. And between young people aged 15 to 24, it was the third leading cause of death. And if you expand the picture to what's the worldwide picture look like, it goes from 41,000 a year to 800,000 human beings every year. That's one in every 40 seconds. Every 40 seconds that you sit and listen to me this morning, somebody somewhere in this world descends into a hopelessness that's so deep that they see no hope and they take their own lives. But we don't see this just in that statistic or just in the, the sort of the, the ultimate end game to where hopelessness can take you, but we see it in, in landmarks earlier on. Reuters uh, reports that one in five Americans today report that they're depressed or unhappy. And they report high levels of stress, anxiety, and sadness. Over the past 15 years, the number of people seeking treatment for depression in the United States has doubled, now well over 35 million people. 
Another statistics, uh, according to a government study, tell us that antidepressants have become the most commonly prescribed drugs in the United States. They're prescribed more than drugs to treat high blood pressure, high cholesterol, asthma, or headaches. It's enough to tell you, isn't it, that people are looking for hope, that they're struggling to find hope, that they're wrestling with discouragement and depression, and they're being beaten down, and they're, and they're struggling with the darkness called hopelessness, and they're looking to find a place where they can find hope, looking for a place where they can an- anchor their lives, that can give them some purpose for living and some hope beyond the circumstances that they're experiencing in a particular moment. If you recall the recent presidential elections from the last uh, couple of cycles, and this is all coming back around again here, uh, you know, just shortly. But you remember one of the big themes was uh, of, the, of the winning candidate was what? Hope and change, right? Why, why would that be the leading, the leading slogan for a presidential campaign? I mean, those things aren't, aren't accidental, right? People put a lot of work, they're paid a lot of money to tap into society and figure out what are the hot buttons for people. What kind of things will people react to? What kind of people things are, are people looking for and desperately needing? And then they're offered to a candidate. If you offer them this, this is what they're looking for. And so hope and change is what's offered. And, and people flock to that message. You'll see that message come back around, I'm sure of it. Because it's still just as real a need today as it was then. Well, God's word is not naive to the reality, is it? It's not naive to the reality that life is hard and that that circumstances come into our lives that can drive us to, to a point of hopelessness if we don't have a firm anchor. And it's not naive to the challenge to sustain hope. We look to the Old Testament book of Job and we find a man whose circumstances were so so bleak and so severe and so difficult that he wondered out loud, wouldn't it be better just to die than it is to live? Wouldn't it be possibly better if I was never even born to begin with than to live the way I'm living right now? Old Testament figure Solomon, the great king of Israel, one of the wealthiest human beings who's ever lived, who in his book of Song of Solomon, another book of Song of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, his other writing, he, he describes for us his pursuit to find value and to find purpose and to find some sort of a meaning in his life that would give him hope. And he had all the wealth of the world at his time at his disposal. And so he was able to pursue every avenue of hope that the world holds up as a legitimate place to find it. He was able to pursue wealth. He was able to pursue possessions. He was able to accumulate those things unlike anyone who had ever gone before him, perhaps unlike anyone who's ever come after him. He was able to to throw himself into pleasure and to just give himself over to every kind of of pleasure that could be humanly experienced. And he he just lived for those things for a season of his life, trying to find some purpose, some sort of a sustaining hope in his life. He tried to, 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 to pursue education and become as smart and as wise as he could. And he, he did achieve that greater than anyone in his day. He pursued sort of a, a career things, trying to build and, 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 and create things that could be left behind after his life was over that might provide some series or se- a sequence of hopes in his life and purpose. At the end of it, you know what Solomon's, you know what Solomon's conclusion was at the end of every one of those roads? That the world in his day and the world in our day holds out as an avenue to find hope and purpose for your life. You know what his conclusion was at the end of every one of those roads? It's all vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. 
Can you imagine that picture? Chasing after the wind. Try it after worship this morning. Just go outside and chase it for a while. The people around you will get a great laugh. And you'll understand how stupid it is, right? It's chasing after something you can never grasp. It's running after and leaping after something that you can never capture. And that was how Solomon, the one who had far more, far more means at his disposal than you and I do, to pursue those things, and he pursued them as, as deeply and as hard as he ever could, and at the end of it all, he got to the end of the road, and he said, you know what? It doesn't provide it. It's like chasing after the wind. At the end of the road of material wealth, at the end of the road of, of, of education for the per, for, for, as a foundation for purpose, at the end of pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure to give us purpose, at the end of all of those roads, Solomon stood and said, you know what? It doesn't provide it. It's just a futile attempt to chase something that you never get. And at the end of it, you end up more hopeless than you began. His conclusion at the end was the same one that Peter is going to conclude. You know, it's not hard to realize the prevailing worldview of our culture in the day, is it? The prevailing worldview that surrounds us in American culture begins with the idea that there is no God, right? Most of our culture does not believe that there's a God. This is not news to us, right? Or is it news to you? I'm not sure. Either you're asleep or you're just not reacting. It's not news to you that the prevailing world culture says that there is no God, Even if there is a God, even if there is some openness to the possibility that there is a God, he's distant and he's uninvolved and he's somewhat ambivalent to what's going on down here. There is no God. And it further says that that really we came from nowhere, that our lives really are just simply the next in a long line of creatures that have sort of evolved from a cosmic slime that began somewhere. There have been many creatures before us and there will be many creatures after us we're just kind of the next in the line that continues to to go we're the result of a bunch of random biological events that's how we got here and beyond the fact that we came from nowhere our lives are really random there's no guiding hand that's in control of things down here there's no particular purpose or particular value to your life or to my life circumstances are random events are random there's nobody that's in control we're just kind of living through it and we don't know what's coming next and it could be anything and there's no guiding hand to control it and our only hope is this we've come from nowhere we've just kind of the next in the, in the long line of evolution and we've just showed up here into a very random world and we have this little window in which we live maybe we have 40 or 50 or 60 or 80 years to live we've got this little window and our only hope is to do something to achieve something to accomplish something in that little window of life that we've been given to to achieve or accomplish something that would be significant enough so that when we're dead, people will will remember us, right? Because the final piece of this prevailing worldview is once we die, there is nothing. We're going nowhere. Not only do we come from nowhere, and not only is life random, but we're not going anywhere either. When you die, it's over. That's just the end. There is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no eternal destiny. You live, you die, that's it. That, I believe, is the prevailing worldview around us. So imagine, if you will, for a moment, that that's the prevailing worldview you've embraced. Just imagine that for a moment. I suspect because you're in a church on Easter Sunday, the odds are it's probably not. 
But imagine if it was. If you believed that that's how things work, that there is no God, that you've come from nowhere, that life is random, and that you have this window of years to live, and your only hope for some sort of value is to achieve or accomplish something that will allow you to be remembered after you're dead, because once you're dead, there is nothing else. If that is what you, if that's how you functioned in this world, answer me this question. When life circumstances come unraveled around you, and your hope to achieve or accomplish something to be remembered is yanked out from under your feet, what would prevent you from taking your own life? It wouldn't be a hard leap, would it? If after all, I've just lived for this short window, and if after all, my only hope to have any sort of value is that I can accomplish or achieve something that I'll be remembered by when I'm dead, by people who live after I do, if, if that's how you view it, and if you're pursuing something and all of it gets yanked out from under you, your relationships fall apart, your career goes south, and all of a sudden you find yourself middle-aged or later or some other age, and your health is bad, and you're not accomplishing anything, and the trajectory doesn't look like you're going to be able to, then why not just, just go? So many folks do. If you're here this morning and there's some smidgen of that worldview that's taken root in your heart and you're struggling to find and you're struggling to sustain hope, listen, I've got great news for you this morning. Peter, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, has great news for you this morning. There is a place beyond that worldview. There is another way of seeing life. There is another way of seeing yourself. There's another way of seeing the world around you. There is a place to anchor your, your, your soul in true, genuine hope. And there is a way to sustain that hope all the way to the end of your life. There is a way. And Peter's going to tell us all about it. He's going to tell us where to find it, and he's going to tell us how to sustain it. The Apostle Peter, if you're not familiar with the New Testament and the big key figures of the New Testament, was, was a fisherman. He was just an ordinary guy who was a fisherman by career. Uh, one day the Lord Jesus Christ comes walking into his life and calls Peter to drop his career of fishing and to come follow him. And Peter does that. He drops his career. He drops his boats. and his, Well, he didn't drop his boats because he wasn't picking it up. But he got out of his boat. He drops his nets. How about that? And his fishing gear. And he just leaves all of that and he follows Jesus. And he becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ for the season in which the Lord was doing public ministry, that part we've been studying in the Gospel of John. Peter rises to become a leader among the twelve apostles. He's with the Lord Jesus right up until the end. If you know anything about Peter's story, he was a bold man who who made bold claims. And right towards the end, after the rest and and prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter has a a miserable and utter moral failure. He, he, He denies even knowing Jesus Christ as one who he had sworn allegiance to. He denies even knowing him. Jesus is crucified and Peter goes back to fishing. He goes back to fishing. We'll talk more about that. Peter's a man who knows something we're going to see about what it feels like to know real pain and to know real loss. He's someone who understands what it's like to feel the personal, severe sting of personal failure. He's one who understands what it's like to have your hopes dashed. And he's the very one who's going to write to us this morning about how you can have hope when those things happen. Peter's writing, First Peter, to believers who are scattered around the world. The people to whom he's writing are Christians. And they're people who are scattered abroad. And the reason they're scattered abroad is because they're hated in the world. And people are persecuting them severely. In many cases, they're losing their possessions. In a lot of cases, they're losing their homes. And in some cases, they're even losing their lives simply because they're Christians. 
not unlike the circumstances in our world in other places right now. But that's the reality to which they're experiencing. They're being pushed to the very edge, perhaps on the verge of losing hope. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage people like that. He writes all of 1 Peter for that purpose, to encourage people who are on the verge of losing hope, to not lose hope. And he reminds them where their hope came from, and he tells them how that hope needs to be sustained, even in the midst of severe persecution. And that's what this letter is all about. And Peter's going to tell them where to find hope and how to maintain it right to the end. Let's look at the first part of that. Where does he talk? What does he say to them about where we can find true, enduring hope? He begins in verse 3. By saying this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter writes to these beleaguered believers and he says to them, the first part of the good news is this, there is a God and he's merciful. Now, in contrast to the prevailing worldview of our day that there is no God, that's great news, Right? If you're a person who doesn't understand that there's a God, you think life is random and everything is out of control, to hear that there is a God, and beyond the fact that there is a God, that he's merciful, that's good news, right? That's great news. Peter does not begin his letter by talking about these believers' circumstances. He doesn't begin this letter of hope by talking about all the bad things that are going on in their life. He doesn't begin even talking about their circumstances at all. Where does he begin? He begins by pointing their eyes away from their circumstances where? Upward. Before we talk about your circumstances, we need to establish something. We need to establish that that's not all there is. What's going on around you isn't all there is. There is a God. And He is merciful. When the circumstances of our life are going nuts and coming unwound all around us, they begin to captivate our attention, don't they? And they begin to captivate our attention to the point where... They consume our thoughts and they consume our, our, our attitudes and they consume our, our, our full attention. And the more they consume it, the more we descend often into hopelessness because the more we get our eyes off of the source that Peter's going to tell us is our true hope. So Peter initially, in wanting to establish hope in the lives of these beleaguered believers, he, he, he instantly takes their eyes off of their stuff and off of the things that are going on, the reasons they have to be discouraged, and he lifts them towards God. And he says, look, there is a living hope. There is a such thing as a living hope. I know your circumstances seem rather hopeless at the morning, but I need to remind you that there is a living hope that's available and that's with you. We need to talk about what hope is. We need to talk about what this word means when we see it in the Bible because it's not the same thing that it means in our culture. When you and I use the word hope in our everyday speech, what do you normally mean by that? Or how do you normally use that? It's sort of like a wish, right? It's, it's, it's a wish, a, sort of a vague sort of a wish for something to happen. Some sort of a vague wish that, that has with it a, a, a pretty significant measure of uncertainty. Like, for instance, I, I hope I have enough money put away so that when I retire I can live, right? I hope I have enough. When I say I hope I have enough, that, that means I, when I say that, that means at this point I really don't know, right? I'm not sure that I'm going to have enough, but I, I hope I will. I hope when that day comes, it may or I may or may not have it. There's a huge level of uncertainty. Or, or I hope Duke wins the NCAA championship on Monday night, right? I hope that. They might, or they might not. 
But I hope they do. I just wish that they will. It's my desire. If I could have all things my way, that's what would happen. But I'm not sure. It may or it may not happen. I hope this sermon isn't too long this morning. Very uncertain. Very uncertain, I'm telling you. High level of uncertainty. You get the idea. When we use the word hope, we're talking about something that we just generally wish for that we're not sure if it will or will not come to bear. Hope, in a biblical sense, the way Peter uses it and the way the other biblical writers use it, is, is not that at all. In fact, it's the opposite of that. It's a, it's a firm assurance, a confident trust in something that has not yet happened or in some, some uh, circumstances that have not yet happened. Things that are, as we're going to see, described as unseen. It's a confident hope, a firm assurance that things are going to turn out a certain way. It's a confident sort of a trust. That level of uncertainty is not there in the biblical word hope. When Peter says we have a living hope, he's not talking about a living sort of a wish that things may or may not turn out a certain way. He's telling us that there is a way that you can have a confident, firm assurance, a confident trust, a firm belief that things are going to turn out the way that that they're supposed to. It's hope. It's a firm, solid expectation. And it's based on the promises of God about the future. John MacArthur says this, Hope is a firm and solid expectation of that which will surely come to pass, including the promises of Christ's return, the promise that we'll be like Him, the promise that we'll be partakers in His glory, the promise that we shall dwell with Him forever, the promise that we'll be free from the curse of sin. And it all stems from the unshakable confidence that God is absolutely faithful to His promises. And therefore, those promises are as sure and as certain as God Himself. Did you catch that? Biblical hope is the idea that we can be confident of what the future holds because the future is resting on promises that God has made and God is faithful and God is sure and God is certain. And because He is sure and certain and our hope is based on His promises, we can have a firm assurance and a confident trust that what He has said will happen will happen. That's hope. That's what hope is. Biblical hope is not crossing our fingers and hoping that God might come through. It's pressing forward with our lives with the full assurance and the firm confidence that he will. Do you see the difference? Hope and faith are, are, are words that are intertwined and they are, they're, in essence, very similar. They both involve trusting God. The main difference is timing. Faith is trusting God with a firm assurance in the present. Hope is trusting God with a firm assurance for the future. It's a slight nuance between the two words. They both involve trusting God. They both having a, a firm and confident assurance in what God has said will be true. But it's just a matter of timing. Faith is me actively, actively living in a confident and firm assurance of what God has said right now in the present. I'm actively living out my faith. Hope is, is living with the reality that God is going to be true to his word in the future. Hope, you could say, is faith toward the future. It's another way of saying it. We build this off of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Or Romans 8, 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? Hope is faith for the future. Unseen things. It's a firm confidence about things that are unseen. So how do we get this kind of a hope? How do we get this kind of a living hope? Well, Peter tells us in verse 3, we are born again into a living hope. How do you get a living hope? You're born again into it. 
That's what he says, right? The way you, you acquire living true hope that he's talking about, this firm assurance, is you're born again into it. It's not something we just work up in our minds, sort of like a mind over matter thing. We don't just sit down and say, I've got to work up some hope today, as though I can conjure it up out of my own human ability somehow. It's not something related to earthly material things or relationships. Hope doesn't come from material possessions. It doesn't come from our 401ks or our stocks. It doesn't come from our relationships or our careers. It doesn't come from our beauty or our education. It comes from being born again into it. It's something we're born again into. Theological word, we're regenerated into it. See, the Bible describes us as being, having the potential to be born twice. In our first birth, he says, we're, the Bible teaches that we're born into dead hopes. That is to say, in our first birth, our human birth, we're born as sinners, right? The Bible tells us that, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is eternal death. That means one day I'm going to die physically. And it also means that spiritually I am going to die. And what that translates to in a New Testament sense is an eternal separation from Almighty God, eternally bearing the wrath for my own sin that I have justly earned. In my first birth, that's what I'm headed for. Any hope that I might acquire during my stay here on this earth dies when I die, if not before. It's just a dead hope. And unless something changes in our life, that's where we end. But in John chapter 3, Jesus was describing this process to a man named Nicodemus, a very religious man. And he says to him, look, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, unless you're regenerated, unless you're brought to spiritual life, there is no way to have true, lasting hope. Any hope that you have as a person who's not born again, who hasn't been born again into the Lord Jesus Christ, who hasn't been regenerated by God Almighty, if you haven't experienced that, any hope that you have is a temporary hope at best, and it dies when you die. But Peter says there's something else we can have. We can have a living hope. A living hope. And it's not something that we earn or acquire or conjure up ourselves. It's something that we're born into by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's anchored to a living person. That's why it's a living hope. It's a living hope, he says, because it's anchored in a living person. That's what he says, right? He says you're born again to a living hope through what? Do you remember? It was on the screen a minute ago. To the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is alive. He's resurrected. He's back to life. He's conquered death. He's conquered the grave. And because he's alive, our hope being anchored in him is a living hope, right? As opposed to the dead hope that we have just when we're living before that. But Jesus Christ doesn't rise from the dead. We're still dead in our sin, and death still reigns, and we have no hope. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. He says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, because we've testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. So if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then what? What are the ramifications of that? Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That is to say, they're eternally dead. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. If hope doesn't extend beyond this life, it's useless. 
And the only way that you can have a hope that's anchored in something that goes beyond this life is to have a living hope. And that living hope is based on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a living and risen Lord, right? That's what he's saying here. Our hope is living. The believers to whom Peter was writing had a hope that was living because their faith was in a resurrected Jesus. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there would be nothing I could say to you this morning to instill in you hope. Hope that can last beyond some temporary season of your life. Oh, I could give you a pep talk that maybe could make you happy for a little while, but then you'd walk outside these doors and life would happen to you again. And it wouldn't be enough to sustain you. The resurrection changes everything. It's what launched the early church, the early Christian church. It launched the church. You track it all the way through the book of Acts, and you see it's the foundation of the Christian church. It's what sustained the early church through all of its persecution and all of the hardship that they went through. It was the, it was the, it was the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that they had that beyond this life there was another. And that beyond this life there was a way to, to move beyond death and to conquer the grave because the Lord Jesus Christ had done so and had promised to those who believe him that they would go where he's gone. The resurrection is what changed Peter forever. It's what changed him forever. Prior to Jesus' arrest, Peter had made some really big boasts. If you know much about his life, just before they went to Jerusalem, Jesus is beginning to tell his disciples, listen, we're going to Jerusalem and things are not going to turn out so good there. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. And Peter stops him. Oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. No, no, over my dead body is essentially what Peter says. Peter says, look, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says, you know, not only is it going to happen, but every one of you is going to forsake me. And Peter once again throws a flag. Oh, no, 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 Jesus. Uh-uh, not me. All these other all these other losers, they might forsake you, but I'm never going to forsake you. Jesus says, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. That's my translation. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I'll never forsake you. Those were the words that came out of his mouth. But we know how it played out. Jesus is arrested. And events begin to unfold. And Peter, just like the rest of them, scatters. And before it's all said and done, Peter is three times denied even knowing Jesus. The one who said, I'll die with you and I'll never forsake you, utterly abandons the Lord Jesus Christ when things get hard. And after the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus, Peter has lost hope before the resurrection. The one he had believed in to be the Messiah was dead. His hopes were crushed. And in the mix of all that, he he was living with the personal failure of having made big boasts and having denied Jesus. Crushed hopes the sting of personal failure, the ministry that he had given his, the last several years of his life to was now gone, and looking back on it, it almost have seemed to him completely hopeless. After the crucifixion, before the resurrection, Peter's hope was dead, and his faith was in question. But then everything changed. If anyone knew what it was like to have his hopes crushed, Peter understood it. If anyone knew what it was like to go home at night feeling like an absolute abject failure, it was Peter. If anyone knew what it was to look like, to to look down the the trajectory of the future of your life and it all be uncertain and in question, and in some ways maybe even seem hopeless, it was this man Peter. But the resurrection made all the difference for him, didn't it? 
You heard Pastor Frank read John chapter 20 early on. The, the account that John gives us of after the resurrection, the ladies coming and finding that the tomb is empty and running and telling the disciples. Incidentally, one of the angels said to those ladies, go tell my disciples and Peter. He wanted Peter to know that. He wanted Peter particularly to know that he was risen. Why? Because he understood where Peter was in his heart and in his outlook and in his discouragement and in his failure. And on the edge of losing hope. And so Peter, Jesus, through the angel, says, go tell Peter. And Peter runs to the tomb. And he goes to that tomb and he looks in and he sees that it's empty. And all of a sudden for Peter, there's a glimmer of hope. Maybe there is hope. Maybe there is hope. But it was only a glimmer of hope. It wasn't yet a full uh, scope of hope for Peter yet because it wasn't yet personal for him, was it? There were still questions. Okay, Jesus is alive. He's not in this tomb. But where does that leave me? I denied him. Will he deny me? I failed him. Utterly, despicably failed him. Will he just press on without me and leave me behind? Is it even possible for a risen Jesus to forgive what I've done? And we flip the page to John chapter 21. And Peter, who's gone back to fishing, Jesus comes walking along the Sea of Galilee And he calls out to him, Peter looks, and there on the shore is the risen Lord, right? And Peter, just overcome with sheer joy, leaps from the boat, I mean, with his clothes on, swims to the shore and races to see Jesus. And this beautiful sort of a picture where Jesus interacts with Peter over a meal of fish. And this beautiful little conversation, Jesus Jesus completely restores Peter to his previous place of ministry. He says to him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, I can only imagine the the shame and the embarrassment in his heart and in his eyes, not knowing how to answer that question. What do you mean, do I love you? My, My life doesn't really show it. What I've done recently doesn't paint a good picture of love for you. But Peter says in his own heart, I do love you. I do. I do love you. In spite of my imperfection, in spite of my failure, I do love you. And you know what Jesus essentially says to Peter in that conversation? He says, all right, Peter, that's enough. That's enough. That's what matters. Peter, it's okay. You're forgiven. I've got a mission for you. I need you to get out there and feed my sheep. And oh, by the way, Peter, you're going to have another chance to stand up for me. And next time when it comes around, that time you'll make it. That time you'll stand firm. And you know what, Peter? You're even going to die for me just like you boasted you would. And all of a sudden, for Peter, this man who was dealing with discouragement and depression and failure and on the verge of hopelessness, sprung to life with hope. It made all the difference in that man's life. He springs forth as a leader of the New Testament church. He becomes the boldest preacher on the planet. He begins to move from place to place preaching. What do you think? The resurrection of Jesus to anybody who will listen. He's hope-filled, bold preacher who goes for Christ right to the end. And he maintains his hope right through persecution and trouble and difficulty, right to the end of his life where he's persecuted and martyred for his faith. Peter found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ a living hope that could sustain him through anything. Peter says to these beleaguered believers who are being persecuted, that same kind of hope that I've experienced, you've got it. You've got it because you've been born again to it. And you've been born again to it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
he lays out that gospel a little further in verses 18 through 21. He explains what it means to be born again, what that gospel looks like, where the resurrection fits into that picture. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like a land that's without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, so that you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope might be in God. Peter points these believers, suffering believers, to Jesus. And he reminds them, you used to be slaves to sin, but you're not slaves to sin anymore. Why? Because you've been ransomed. A ransom has been paid to, 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 to pay for your freedom from your slavery. And that ransom that was paid was not silver or gold. It wasn't anything earthly. It wasn't anything human. Your ransom was paid by what? The precious blood of Jesus. Your, your ransom was paid. You used to be a sinner, but you used to be enslaved to your sin. You used to owe God a debt that you could never pay. But Christ, the Lord Jesus, has paid your debt with his very blood. His precious blood. And it wasn't just a plan that happened incidentally. It wasn't something that God, that was kind of an afterthought for God, because he says, speaking of Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What is he saying to these believers? Listen, he's saying, before you ever understood what it was to even be a sinner, before you even realized that you were one and that you needed a hope, before you ever realized that you were a slave to sin and needed a ransom paid for you, there was a plan in place. God had already planned. He had already planned your freedom. He had already planned a foundation foundation for your hope he had already planned for jesus to shed his precious blood to ransom you now the cross and the resurrection was no afterthought from god it was no last minute fix it was god's plan all along he was foreknown before the foundation of the world he says it's not just that he was foreknown it's not just that god had planned for you to be saved it wasn't just that god had planned for you to have hope but he says in the second part of verse 20 but this christ who was foreknown before the foundation was made manifest in these last times what does he mean by that he's saying to them remember what happened the plan that God had for your salvation, the plan that God had to establish your hope was planned before time that the Lord Jesus would come and shed his precious blood. That plan was made manifest. That is to say that Christ came. That he actually did what had been planned for all eternity, that he was born of a virgin, miraculously born of a virgin. Luke tells us the report of that. John tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? That he was born, that, that the, the one who was planned to purchase their freedom and to purchase their hope was born. But he wasn't just born, he, was, he, he, was, he, he lived a perfect life. Isn't that right? Christ was born, but he lived a perfect life. That was part of him being made manifest. He lived among men. He, he operated with pure perfection in his life. For the 30-something years of his life that he lived, he lived them in complete perfection. And he lived them to earn a righteousness that could later be imputed to his people so that his people could no longer be sinners but could be counted righteous because of him. He was made manifest in his birth. He was made manifest in his perfect life. But Peter goes on to say he was crucified and he was buried. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried. The perfect Lamb of God who had done absolutely nothing wrong, who had lived a perfect life, was arrested, crucified, buried in a grave. 
But Peter goes on to say in verse 21, that wasn't the end of the story. God raised him from the dead. The one who was born, the one who lived, the one who was crucified and buried was, was raised from the dead. And his resurrection is unmistakable proof that the ransom had been paid and that God had accepted the cost and that the redeeming work that he had been sent to accomplish was done. He was raised from the dead. He goes on to say he was exalted. He gave him glory. Why did all that happen? Why did God create this plan? Why was the Lord Jesus Christ made manifest? Why was he born? Why did he live a perfect life? Why was he crucified? Why was he buried? Why did he raise it from the dead? Why is he exalted to the right hand of the Father even now? Peter tells us in verses 20b and 21a. He says it was all done for your sake. For your sake. All of that took place for your sake. You who through him are believers in God. So that your faith and your hope could be where? In God. Say that with me. So that your hope could be in God. Do you hear what Peter's talking about? The Lord Jesus... His mission was planned. He was made manifest. He lived. He lived a perfect life. He died. He went through the agony of, of, of his death and the crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. And all of that was done for you so that God could be glorified in saving you. So that God could be glorified in saving me. And so that you and so that I would have a place to where we could anchor our hope and it would be a living hope. All of that took place for that purpose. And Peter is reminding these people who are struggling so deeply on the edge of losing their hope. You need to remember something. You have a living hope. And that living hope is anchored in a living Lord who died, who lived, who died, who was buried and resurrected for you. And who even at this moment, in spite of all of your horrible circumstances, is living this moment. And all of his promises are still good. And there's still reason for you to have hope. It's all for you. Struggling for hope this morning, looking for a place to find hope in your life, a place that you can anchor yourself, that can sustain you through the end. There's one place and one way to get that. It's to be born again. It's to be born again. It's to believe what I just told you is true. That Christ came, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, that he was crucified and he was buried. And he did those things in order to pay the ransom that you owed. A ransom that was due, a debt that was due, a debt that you had earned by your sin. A debt that you could never pay. It's by entrusting your life to him and believing and trusting what he did on the cross was effective at paying the ransom for you. And that because of what he's done and placing your trust in what he's done... Submitting your life to his rule. The Lord Jesus Christ says if you, does, if you do that, you'll be born again. And part of being born again is being born again to something. To hope. To hope. That's where hope is birthed. You say, well, what about how do I sustain it? Look at verse 13 quickly. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's told them about in the beginning that there's a way to have a living hope. And at the end of this section in verse 21, he said, listen, all these things that Christ has done has been in order for you so that you could hope in God. There's a way to have a living hope and you can hope in God. But how do you sustain that hope? You set that hope fully, he says, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus You've already tasted of God's grace in the past. 
You're, you're dealing right now with God's grace in the present. He says, but we're to set our hope on God's grace for the future. Not, not partially, but we're to set our hope what? We're to anchor our hope fully on what God has for us in the future and on His promises for the future. His promise of eternal life. His promise of, cry, of making us like His Son. His promise of making all things right by the end. His promise of redeeming not only our soul, but redeeming the whole person of who we are and giving us eternal life. It's setting our hope fully on those things. Not setting our hope partially on those things and partially on our wealth. Not partially on what the Lord Jesus has for us and partially in our health and in modern medicine. Not partially in the the Lord Jesus Christ and partially in my own skills or my own gifts or my own talents or my own career or this nation or some government leader. Here to set our hope fully on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Set it fully there. You set your hope on anything other than that. And it's just a matter of time before hopelessness creeps in. He tells us how to do that. How do we do that? How do I set my mind fully on the grace that will be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus? He's talking that grace brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. He's talking about the second coming. Set your hope fully on what Christ is going to ultimately do at the end. You, you, you've believed in what he's done in the past, right? You've already believed in his death, burial, and resurrection. You've already trusted and believed and have faith in that. He's saying, listen, if you want to maintain hope, take that same faith and, 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 and change the trajectory to the future. And have the same kind of faith and hope in what he's still going to do. What he's promised he'll do. If your mind's on that, what happens in this life as it comes and goes, goes up and down, it can't rob you of what ultimately matters. How do you do that, though? How do you do that? He says two things. Preparing your mind for action. Preparing your mind for action. And being sober-minded. Just let me quickly lay this out. That preparing your mind for action. If you read... uh, the old King James Version. Any of you have that with you this morning, you'll see it. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. I love that. I don't know what it means when I read it the first time, but it says, gird up the loins of your... I didn't know my mind had loins. I'm not even sure I know what a loin is, I think. Well, I do because I studied it, but, you know, before I did, I didn't. What does that mean to say, gird up the loins of your mind? It's the, it's the imagery of a Roman soldier who's taking his long, his long uh, sort of garment and pulling it up and tucking it under his belt. That's what a Roman soldier would do before he went into battle for obvious practical reasons, right? Ladies, is it easy to fight with a long skirt? No, not if you need to move, right? Nobody wants to admit they've ever been in one of those fights, right? But if you know you need to move quickly, ladies, and you've got a long skirt on, what better, what had you better do? You better find some way to get that skirt up a little bit and free your legs. Otherwise, you try to run in a long skirt, and there's a good chance you're going to bite the dust, right? Some of you made that mistake. I could see you nodding and smiling. The same was true of a Roman soldier. If they have a long rope and you got to fight, you, you pull that thing up and you tuck it into your belt and you free up your legs so that you can be mobile and so that you can fight. And that's the imagery that he's using here when he says, gird up the loins of your mind. He's saying, get your mind prepared. He said, free your mind from all the stuff that's going to clutter it up. If you're going to, if you're going to maintain hope to the end, you have to set your minds fully on the grace that's coming to you. You've got to pull up your skirt of your mind, so to speak. You've got to pull that up and you've got to let loose of anything that can entangle you and trip you up. He rightly locates the battle for hope to what part of our being? Our mind. Our mind. Prepare your minds for action. That's what he's talking about. 
He's saying, listen, you've got to prepare your mind. The battle for hope is a battle that takes place in the mind. And if you're going to maintain hope to the end, you've got to prepare your mind. You've got to make sure your mind is set on the right things. And that the right thing that it's to be set on is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's promised and what he's ultimately going to do. Paul writes in Romans 12, be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes uh, unbelievers. And he says this about them. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. And what else does he say about them? Their mind is where? It's on earthly things. The battle for, the, for hope is a battle in the mind. And it's a battle to maintain a mind that's set fully on the Lord Jesus Christ and the revelation of what he has yet to come. And it's a battle to maintain that trajectory and to maintain that mindset when there's a thousand other earthly concerns that crowd in for our mental attention. It's a battle for truth. He says, be sober-minded. It's the idea of not being intoxicated, not losing control of our thoughts and our, our actions. He's not talking about drinking alcohol. He's talking about the idea that the world is constantly barraging our minds with its own system of values, with its own ways of thinking, with its own worldviews, constantly telling us, look here for hope, look there for hope, come over here for hope. This is what gives you value. Follow this, follow that, pursue these things, think about these things. And the world is constantly attacking us with its own mindset, if you will. And we drink too heavily of that stuff and it spiritually inebriates us. It dulls our senses to God's will and to God's values. We can't think straight. Peter says, if you want to maintain your hope, set your mind fully on the grace that's to be revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The promises of God for the future. What does that kind of hope look like? Well, it looks like a young boy named David who walks onto a battle scene with a giant. And everyone else is terrified to go near this man. But David was a man of hope. And for David, hope wasn't a wish. For David, it was a firm conviction and a settled assurance of what God was going to do on his behalf. It came out of his mouth like this. He says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine Goliath. Your servant will go and fight him. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That's hope. You see it? That's hope. God's going to do it. And I'm willing to go. Because I believe it. Hope looks like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Young, faithful men. Daniel. Thrown into a fiery furnace before the Lord. Who stand before a king with their lives literally hanging in the balance. Who look up to this king, Nebuchadnezzar, and say to him, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into that blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. That's what hope looks like. It's a settled assurance that allows us to stand firm in the face of unbelievable circumstances because we believe the promises of God that he's given us for the future. And for the moment. That's what hope looks like. 
And you only get it by being born again, by entrusting your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you only sustain it by daily battling to set your hope fully on the Lord Jesus Christ and not allow your hope to get reoriented to the things of this world. Because the moment it does, your hope will crash and burn. Do you need hope this morning? Have you come here struggling? Have you come here struggling in whatever's going on in your life? Maybe like Peter, you understand the sting of failure this morning. Something's gone wrong in your life, and you know what it's like to be that. And you wake up, you woke up this morning feeling like a failure. Do you know what it's like to feel personal loss? Something has been taken from you that you love dearly, and it's robbed you of your hope and your joy. Do you know what it's like to have your career not go the way you have expected, to lose the promotion or lose your job, and wonder, am I going to be able to do anything productive? Are you struggling to find hope? You'll never find it in a career. You'll never find it in human relationships. You'll never find it in your health or your accomplishments. It can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, a living hope birthed from a living Lord who's risen, who died, buried, rose again for you. You can find it this morning by simply where you are in your own heart, believing the gospel message, believing that the Lord Jesus came, that he was God in flesh, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross to pay the ransom for your sin. Believing that your only hope for eternal life and for life right now is to by faith entrust your life to him and to turn away from your life of sin and selfishness and make a commitment right now that you'll do your very best to live your life for him, submitting to his lordship. If you do that, there's no magic formula, there's no magic prayer. If you do that in your own words this morning, the Bible says you will be born again. The Lord God will regenerate you. He'll make you a new person. You'll be born again to a living hope that will sustain you to the rest of your life and right through to life eternal. I want to ask you if you'd bow your head and close your eyes. Right now where you are, if you don't have that this morning, you need to have it. Right now, if you're struggling for hope and and you're discouraged and you're depressed and you're disappointed because everything you've placed your hope in has all utterly failed you. And when you think about it right now, you know it won't sustain you to the end of your life. Listen to the word of the Lord this morning. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from controlling your own life and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe Him and trust your life to Him. Commit to Him from this day forward. That you'll be his. The Bible says if you'll do that, he will forgive every sin you've ever committed. He will wipe them away. The Bible says that he will cause you to be born again. New life. Everything will change. And among those things that change, you'll have a living hope. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who've come into this place this Easter Sunday struggling to find hope. Lord Jesus, I pray that their eyes would lift to you in these quiet moments. That their eyes would lift to your cross. That their attention would move toward your grave. And then ultimately to the empty tomb where you're risen and living and exalted. That they would see you this morning as their only hope. And in these quiet moments, right now where they're sitting, that they would entrust their lives to you. That they would turn from the way they've been living and turn toward you and embrace you with their whole heart. 
pray by your Holy Spirit you would make that happen. And for those of us who know you, for those believers who've come struggling with their hope waning, like the people to whom Peter was writing, I pray that you'd help them in these moments to set their hope fully on you, to lift their eyes above their circumstances that are going on right now and set their eyes on you. Be reminded of all your future promises. Remind them of your faithfulness to see them through to the end. Strengthen them, encourage them, Lord, we pray for your sake. Amen. Thank. Amen. Thank. Amen. Thank. Amen. Thank. Amen.